0: Hi there, everyone. Dr. Richard McCallum joining you on our monthly podcast on the Editor-in-Chief of uh, the Journal of the American Federation for Medical Research, uh, the, Ameri- the Journal of Clinical Investigation. Um, and it's my pleasure as we do each month to choose a prominent person in, in a field that may reflect what's going on this particular month. And every month has many names to it and many things are celebrated. But this month is Healthy Lung Month. And I think it's certainly always timely to bring up this topic in our society and to have an expert join us. And I'm very grateful that Dr. Mia Ziki, uh, who's at uh, University of California, Davis, uh, chief of pulmonary there, is is really able to uh, join us today, and um, he's going to sort of give us the gospel or give us some highlights uh, based on some questions I'm going to ask him for that topic. Just to give you some information about Amir, he um, went to medical school at uh, Washington, University of Washington, Seattle, very well known for being the kind of... Uh, Uh, prep school for academics, if you like, particularly on the West Coast, but I think nationally, many of our great leaders have touched base in Seattle. Um, Then he went down to University of California, Davis, uh, Sacramento, to begin his residency, and for pretty good reasons, you can imagine, was tempted to stay on for fellowship in pulmonary critical care. And lo and behold, uh, here at 19 years later, He's still there now, uh, risen up the ranks. Um, he's um, assistant professor in the division of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. His specialty is pulmonary and critical care. And I've gotten to know Amir because of my uh, work with the Journal of uh, investigative, medicine. investigative medicine. I keep saying JCI clinical investigation, but investigative medicine where he is the head of the publications committee. And I had the you know, honor, really, of receiving a call from him one day, officially inviting me to become the next editor-in-chief about a year and a half ago. And I was very, very happy to accept that. And under his tutelage, the journal is flourishing, and I'm very glad to be the editor-in-chief. But Amir uh, has been a major player in the American Federation for Medical Research, uh, rising up to be the the chair of the Western section, little wonder, it meets in Carmel and uh, one could be accused of not going to the meetings and just drinking some wine on the beach at Carmel and and relaxing. Um, We also have seen him now become chair of the American Federation for Medical Research, Uh, the the sister of our body, uh, it's our classroom. He rose up to lead us there and remains extremely active at many levels in in our American Federation of Medical Research. So, with those credentials, uh, Amir, welcome officially.
1: Thank you, Richard. Great to be with you today. I have one just minor correction. The the chief of pulmonary yeah. is actually Nicholas Kenyon. I'm one of his. uh yeah. he's one of my. Uh, I mentors.
0: did. I, I did jump ahead a little bit. I I I apologize for that. Uh, but you obviously have a crucial role in the division. But um, yes, Uh, I did some reading. Um, Karina gave me some reading. I'm I'm very impressed. I know a bit about GI, but uh, on a normal day, we breathe nearly 25,000 times and more than 10,000 liters of air we inhale it is mostly oxygen and nitrogen. Of course, in addition, we have these other toxins that can float in and out, including bacteria and viruses. But of the toxins, tobacco, smoke, and automobile exhaust always get their share of press and other pollutants, particularly in the farm world. But I'm going to start with you, Amir, because um, in GI, we're surrounded by hyperemesis uh, due to legalized marijuana. And I'm on the Texas uh, public health and... um, science board, and we lobby to, to try to stop all smoking, including uh, vaping, and trying to attract our younger um, indulgers by trying to get it methylated and all sorts of attractive uh, tastes. So let us start by telling us a bit about what's going on, or what do we know about vaping in the lung, and also marijuana and the lung, although it all sounds pleasurable, legalized in many states, Uh, We know trouble lies ahead. Do you want to give us your view on that?
1: Yeah, sure. I can comment on this uh, uh, briefly. Uh, You know, marijuana is quite popular and increasingly used more and more with various legalization efforts. And it's certainly known to be associated with uh, inflammation in the large airways and increased uh, resistance to airflow and also lung hyperinflation, and those who smoke marijuana regularly report more symptoms of cough or chronic bronchitis than those who, who don't smoke. Um, it is uh, an irritant uh, to the throat and the lungs, and and it certainly over time can uh, lead to chronic symptoms um, such as uh, coughing. Uh, it contains levels of various volatile chemicals and tar that are similar to tobacco smoke, different in some ways, but, but also similar. And they have raised concern in the literature for some association, uh, or at least theoretical association with cancer and chronic lung disease, although the cancer angle, as far as I know, hasn't really been proven or panned out um, uh, as compared to, for example, cigarette smoking. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not a marijuana expert, but from, from the little that I do know, uh, we certainly see patients with this. Um, marijuana does, marijuana smoke does contain Uh, carcinogenic combustion uh, products as well. Uh, And uh, some of the various inorganic compounds that are known to be in cigarette smoke are also found there. So certainly there is concern uh, from many experts in the field, um, especially those who do uh, tobacco-related research and occupational medicine and and inhaled toxins. This is something that's uh, uh, certainly been of concern. And then your other question was related to e-cigarette use, uh, and certainly this has come to the fore now uh, with e-cigarettes and what's also known as vaping, um, we've seen some very serious problems with this condition. I mean, I've seen it clinically and, and taking care of patients. Uh, we're also, I'm sure you guys and your audience has heard of um, e-cigarette or vaping use associated lung injury, also known as e-valley, uh, and there was a certain uh, 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 a period where there were many, many acute cases of hospitalized patients on mechanical ventilators. I have personally taken care of patients that, that uh, I've diagnosed w- with what others and, and, and we call vapor lung that manifests as uh, um, uh, eosinophilic uh, uh, pneumonia and bronchitis, as well as what's called organizing pneumonia, um, and uh, many of the patients that I've seen um, continue to have symptoms even after uh, treatment. So it's still an area that's evolving. People are learning more and more about it. But certainly, um, e-cigarette use has uh, posed a significant problem, and the CDC's um, uh, become involved in response to a multi-state outbreak uh, that was first identified, I believe, in the in the summer uh, of uh, of 2019. And um, it's, uh, it, it's an area that uh, is also garnered a lot of uh, research and interest from NIH. Um, there are many harmful products in the ingredients uh, of, of e-cigarettes, including uh, ultrafine particles, flavorants, in particular diacetyl, which is really a, a chemical that has uh, been linked to serious lung damage. Volatile organic compounds, heavy metals such as nickel, tin, and lead have also been reported um, and as well as uh, formaldehyde. So it's quite a handful with uh, vaping and certainly to some degree with marijuana use as well.
0: Good. Thanks very much, Mia. Now, you know, I see a lot of uh, scleroderma in the gut as a gastroenterologist, see a lot of pulmonary hypertension, fibrosis. and But on the other hand, uh, I see people with mysterious pulmonary hypertension um, who don't have an underlying reasonable uh, cause. And you know, I've often wondered, we know about the nephrologists, they have a magic list of drugs that cause interstitial fibrosis in the kidney and present with unexplained uh, renal failure. Do you have a magic uh, sort of a top 10 list of drugs for us as internists and uh, patient care providers that we should think about in the... Um, in patients that are taking medic- medications and worrying about, could this lead to lung damage or come in with evidence of l- lung damage or already? Do you have a little um, uh, list that you carry around that seem to help you c- keep patients, uh, um, you know, away from these uh, potentially serious agents?
1: Yeah, I mean, in, the, in particular, the ones that come to mind would be drug-induced pulmonary fibrosis. Um, that's that's an area that, that we we certainly see in our clinical practice, especially uh, when you're seeing patients on the uh, in the inpatient side. Um, big ones would include uh, certain antibiotics like nitrofurantoin, um, certain immunosuppressant drugs uh, like methotrexate, and, and many others um, uh, in the in the um, uh, under the category of immunosuppressant drugs. Uh, certain cardiac medications, in particular amiodarone is the, is the big offender that, that can cause various different uh, pulmonary manifestations. It can also cause liver and thyroid problems uh, and uh, big time with cancer chemotherapy drugs. I mean, there is all kinds of reports with various different uh, agents that are uh, well reported to be associated with uh, uh, typically an acute pneumonitis that then will uh in the healing process resolve uh, into a chronic uh, uh, scarred lung uh, that looks like pulmonary fibrosis uh, radiographically. And if you were to biopsy it as well, although typically those cases are not biopsy because they clinically have the physiologic and radiographic features of fibrosis. Uh, and then there are other biologic agents that have been reported as well, although I'm less familiar
0: mm-hmm. with,
1: with that particular list. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and of course there's also medications that historically have been associated with, uh, pulmonary hypertension, like certain, you know, uh, diet, uh, loss, uh, uh, medications from decades past, uh, but really in terms of pulmonary hypertension, I think you mentioned that as well. Um, it's, it's not so much medication induced, but more, um, uh, it drug induced. So people who are using, uh, methamphetamines in particular, uh, some, The cohorts of those who uh, use uh, vasoactive agents, uh, perhaps cocaine, um, can have uh, a manifestation of pulmonary arterial or hypertension. Of course, you have to go through the uh, diagnostic workup because there are several big categories and uh, big differential diagnosis uh, that you have to rule out. Um, Of course, autoimmune disease is a big one that's associated with that. So, yep. For those conditions.
0: Good. Thank you. And then uh, let me finish up by getting back to a little more GI stuff that I see every day, and that is uh, the silent reflux, gastroesophageal reflux. People wake up at night coughing, wake up with the asthmatic attacks of unknown origin, chronic cough of unknown origin, uh, hoarseness, uh, vocal cord issues, um, and get a big workup and eventually they come to me for 24-hour pH monitoring or ways in which I can blame uh, acid slash bile reflux into getting into the throat at night and perhaps inducing to some degree asthma and or uh, chronic lung changes. So I like your opinion on where that field is going. If you have have much uh, experience with that, side of the of the lung world?
1: Yeah if you're you're talking about um, regurgitation or GERD um, uh, reflux certainly we see it it's very common uh, in the severe asthma clinic that I co-direct it's one of the major comorbid conditions that I look for uh, even in COPD but it seems to be more uh, uh, prominent in in, um, in in asthma for for whatever reason and it's one of those comorbid conditions that we really pay attention to and try to diagnose and treat aggressively because often we find patients uh, don't really uh, respond uh, completely to asthma therapy unless you, until you get these other uh, conditions of comorbid uh, diseases addressed. The literature on it is, as far as I know, when the last time I reviewed it, is uh, somewhat equivocal in terms of the large trials that have been done uh, that have been directed at treating GERD. Uh, in the setting of asthma. Uh, but I can tell you anecdotally from, from clinical experience, some patients have been so severe that they've been referred, you know, for surgery, nissen fund application, et cetera. And, uh, some, I even stopped coming to my clinic because it, 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 helped their asthma so much. And they, they fell from the quote unquote severe category into the more mild or intermittent category. Those who are severe and stay severe, um, often will, will need active, uh, you know, uh, therapy for their uh, reflux. And there are, there are times where if I'm having difficulty controlling their asthma, um, and I suspect silent GERD, I will refer them to GI for a manometry and a pH probe, uh, in, in order to, uh, di- diagnose them properly and, and treat them aggressively. And, you know, I, I'd say about at least, you know, a third of the time or more that ends up being the case, um, and they end up uh, going on therapy uh, and over time uh, symptoms of asthma seem to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't happen with everybody. Um, some patients, you know, treating comorbid conditions doesn't seem to help their asthma control as much. And every patient's an individual and you really have to target your, your uh, therapeutic regimen uh, to, to meet their needs best.
0: Yeah, we would certainly recommend uh, using 24-hour pH monitoring a lot more frequently. There we can correlate the symptom, the timing, uh, was there acid reflux occurring at the time of the cough or the time of the attack? And uh, the nocturnal reflux is dangerous, dangerous for the esophagus as well as the lung. And we have a low threshold for surgery. uh, If they're on PPIs, nocturnal bed raising, lifestyle management and they're still having this problem then um, having to sit up at night on uh, on recliners and issues like that we have a low threshold for doing a either a Nissen which is a 360 wrap or what's called a door fund application which is a 180 wrap uh, which is not quite as negative for the gas bloat syndrome and the risk of dysphagia but, uh, Yes, this is a very reversible area in some cases if you uh, remain vigilant uh, and aware of their symptoms, particularly unexplained nocturnal symptoms. Uh, it's a good, very good tip-off. Yes, for let sure. Have, um, let me give you a couple of minutes at the end to maybe say something about uh, your specific, um, you know, some views you may have and your role as uh, um, director, uh, we're well, in the pulmonary and critical care clinic, but uh, also critical care sleep medicine. Um, any hot areas you'd like to leave the audience with that uh, are evolving or new things that are happening in your world?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is uh, that related to COVID. Certainly, we've learned a lot about the acute uh presentation and management of, of uh, COVID uh, pneumonia, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, the management in the ICU, whether you're using high flow oxygen um, or you're uh, mechanically ventilating the patients uh, and the various complications that we have seen. Um, however, something that's emerging uh, that's just recently being reported is what's called uh, long COVID, L-O-N-G, long COVID or post COVID syndrome And this is something that uh, patients who recover and leave the hospital uh, end up having various manifestations, uh, symptoms that uh, include some some non-specific things like headaches and some neurological symptoms, uh, but also cardiopulmonary symptoms uh, such as shortness of breath and fatigue that doesn't seem to go away. So what our institute uh, has done is our pulmonary uh, division has collaborated uh, with the cardio, uh, cardiology division, and we are starting a post-COVID clinic that will be staffed by both uh, cardiology as well as a pulmonary uh, group of attendings who will then be seeing uh, patients who are post-COVID, meaning they've recovered from COVID, who will be evaluated and assessed as to the etiology for their symptoms, in particular uh, that related to dyspnea. And things that come to mind would be, uh, you know, pulmonary fibrosis, uh, you know, loss of skeletal muscles, uh, which can contribute to breathlessness, uh, you know, uh, various cardiac syndromes, whether it's pulmonary hypertension or or heart failure of some kind. We really don't know much about this. And this is, uh, I would imagine, going to be an area that will also be uh, ripe for research as well as you um, characterize and phenotype the patients and make the proper diagnoses. We will hopefully be able to contribute to the uh, understanding of this uh, condition and those who do have it, and then ultimately be able to identify risk factors of who might develop this and why. Um, so this condition is now, at least at this moment in time, appears to have both the, an acute component and in some patients, a more chronic component, which is really uh, fascinating, disheartening in some way, but also fascinating in terms of mm-hmm. our ability. Uh, get together and, and uh,
0: find solutions. Yeah, I think we're seeing it in GI. We just got an NIH grant as well to look at the long-term sequelae of COVID on the gut. And uh, I know that nephrologists are seeing their share also in the, in their world. So this is you know, it's going to be a long-term um, career, I think, in many ways, but post-epidemic uh, effects on organs that... Um, some will be covered totally, but some will have a chronic, a lingering effect, if you like, and uh, the lung obviously is, is in the middle of it. So, Amir, I want to thank you again for, for, for updating us and giving us these, this important information. Um, thank you again for all you've done for the American Federation of Medical Research, uh, particularly your ongoing work as chair of the Publications Committee, which benefits so many of us our young faculty, our assistant and associate professors, and you've been very key in stimulating people to please join our society, please benefit from the mentoring and from the growth and networking that is um, part of us and um, evolving your career with us. And certainly for me, publishing in the Journal of Investigative Medicine would be highly uh, Appreciated as well as sending in those abstracts this year. Although the meetings are virtual, uh, there'll be very good meetings, Western, Southern, Midwest, and Eastern. So I'll put that plug in as well. So I'm here, I'll let you get back to those busy critical care beds and some patients there with COVID, but um, uh, we wish you and your family good health and, and our best wishes um, out there in, in Davis.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to join you and best of luck to you and, and your endeavors and uh, stay healthy.
0: <laughs> Thank you again. Everyone, that's the conclusion of our podcast for today, The Healthy Lung in October. Uh, please be aware that on the um, inside, of the back cover of the of Investigative Medicine, you'll see a list of podcasts for the year 2020, an impressive list of many organs and uh, Dr. Zeki. Uh, Dr. Ziki's recorded podcast will be available to you at that time as well. Once again, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you in November. Bye-bye.